HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. It's our 14th year, and for the first time, we get to be at the Craft Malt Conference in Portland, Maine. And I'm sitting with three maltsters who I only just met yesterday, <laughs> and uh, they're going to introduce themselves, and we're going to have a conversation about malt and maltsters and all things good that makes your beer and spirits best. Okay, so let's go around the room. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. Uh, my name is Jordan Ulrich. I am with Epiphany Craft Malt in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Joe Hamill. I'm with Redshed Malting up in uh, Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. And I'm Jeff Bloom. Uh, I founded Murphy and Rude Malting Company in Charlottesville, Virginia. All right, so first we're going to talk about the, the Craft Malt Conference and what it is. You know, as most of you probably know that, you know, barley malted is, is the base of beer. And other than water, it's really what all beer depends on. And these guys are going to tell you more about that. But, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, through the Craft Maltsters Guild, I've got to interview quite a few really good people from the world of malt and, and grains. And this is like the all-star world of, of malt. <laughs> you know, so if you want to make good beer or spirits, you got to get to know some of these people. So we're going to start. Everyone's just going to introduce themselves a little bit about what they've done. And what, as I'm always interested, I'm interested in people's jobs and, and how they got into the industry. So, Jordan, start with you, because I, I picked you as the all-star from the minute I heard you talking yesterday. Um, so, yeah, I have been malting for about seven years now. Uh, I started off in uh, Asheville, North Carolina at Riverbend Malt House um, before I moved on to Epiphany. Um, I pretty much run the show at Epiphany. Uh, Sebastian, the owner and founder, um, has kind of given me the reins, which has been really great. He's been a great mentor, uh, and I really enjoy working with him. Um, I have a degree in agriculture, which is how I got into uh, malting, uh, working with the barley breeders at Virginia Tech. Um, so I'm very fortunate to still have connections and work with them to this day. Wow, that's great. What was your first job in, in the industry? Uh, working as the lab uh, specialist at Riverbend Malt. Yep. That's good. So you weren't cleaning kegs. <laughs> no, I was not cleaning kegs. I was raking malt instead. <laughs> I like this malt crowd. It's a little cool. And now Joe. And Joe, I met you yesterday because he's, he's from Canada. And everyone here from Canada kind of cannot forget. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we're up in Canada, have a grain farm, and added a malt house to it about eight years ago. Um, so we specialize in roasted products. Um, that's probably half of our sales are roasted malts. And then the rest are kind of high kiln and a little bit of base. What's the difference between roasted malts and other malts? Uh, so, so our roasted malts, um, they're going to add a lot more flavor and color to the beers. Um, so they're using a lot smaller proportions in the, in the recipes and, and distilled spirits. But 
Um, we're we're hour away from a couple of the big malt houses, um, so that's why we decide to focus on the specialty malts in our business. Great, that's a great intro. Thanks. And Jeff, everyone's been telling me I should talk to you. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> here I am. Uh, so I founded Murphy and Rude Malting in uh, 2017, went into production in 2018. Um, prior to that, uh, I was malting in my basement. So I'm essentially a self-taught uh, guru, if you will. Um, I come from a corporate uh business development, bid capture management background. Um, but, uh, you know, I fell in love with the agriculture behind malting before I fell in love with malting, uh, to be honest. And, and what's interesting about that is that um, I have no agricultural background. My parents don't own a farm. I'd never worked on a farm. Um, I think they're great. Uh, but I... It's, it's not necessarily the most uh, linear story of how I ended up here. Um, I think what it really ended up being is realizing what it takes to get um, grain not only in the ground and grown successfully, but then uh, moved and malted and brewed uh, all within very tight quality specs. And so it was just very... Um, it was captivating to really kind of dig into this. And then, um, like Joe, uh, we actually did build with a focus on specialty malts, um, knowing we really didn't have the capacity that we needed to compete at the you know commodity pricing that uh, we knew was going to be demanded. Um, and go figure, uh, about 65% of our business is base malt. So, uh, I mean, I really nailed it on the business model. Uh, on the business model piece, despite the fact that I vetted it with as many people as I could, uh, which is another good tip to potential business owners, um, what your potential customers say and actually do are oftentimes very different. So it's like the old thing. It's like, uh, let the numbers tell you what to do, right? Wow. And Joe's laughing over there. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. Like you, you come up with a plan and you're going to focus on something and then, yeah, the customers kind of kind of drive you in, in a different direction sometimes and yeah, it's, it's yeah it's fun <laughs> so like th that first moment uh, starting with, with jordan when did you know that that malt was your thing oh man so in grad school uh i studied barley breeding and i did not know what i wanted to do all i knew is that i wanted to work in the beer industry and i was like how can i make this work like how do i get in and um my mentor, Wincy Brooks, he hooked me up with Riverbend Malt, and I kind of started with them, and I was like, wow, I can actually use my degree uh, and get into the brewing industry. So that's kind of um, how I got hooked on it, and once I started working for them, I was like, oh, I really love this. I get to work out in the fields. I get to work with the barley. There's a real connection between the farmers and the malt house, and then through that, the brewers, and I really liked doing all of that. So that's how I kind of figured that with malt. Cool. Yeah, so I, I started homebrewing <laughs> and uh, being on the farm, growing barley already, wanted to naturally use my own grains in my own beer. So I started doing some research and looking into it, talking with my brother, and he took it a little bit further and started a business plan. And, and then, um, yeah, we, we just went head first in and started malting. Um, and I always wanted to come back to the farm. I was working off farm before and and this was one way we could diversify the farm and and bring some more incomes to get me back so yeah great and jeff your moment um my my moment was um really a, a moment of, of curiosity i mean back in uh 2012 2013 i believe um virginia changed their brewery laws which allowed breweries to sell their beer on premise out of their own um, out of their own location uh, as opposed to just providing samples so then people would go to the store and buy it at the store through dis distribution um, so that changed the brewery model landscape in Virginia um, about pretty much instantly uh, the number of breweries doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again um, and there was a curiosity moment with a, a buddy of mine. We were, um, we're at a brewery having a pint, and 
I was curious who the geniuses were that were in the supply chain behind this booming craft beverage industry. I mean, it wasn't only beer. I mean, even distilleries had been doubling overnight, um, despite their loss still being quite tight. Um, so I went, you know, I went home and I, and I wanted to find who these people were because I, I thought it would be a, a brilliant uh, business decision. And I could not find anybody to save my life. Um, and so I just kept looking. I'm like, there's just no way that there's nobody out there. Um, and it was through my endless Google searching, convinced that there was somebody out there that I was missing, um, that I kind of fell into the agriculture behind malting and, you know, the where are these people question kind of left my mind completely. And I really got into, um, you know, the, the breeding programs, the, um, the malting specs, you know, why you pick specific varieties, um, what's important about those specific varieties, how we malt them to, to maximize their, their functionality and their flavor. And then what breweries are looking at and distilleries are looking at. And, you know, it just completely, um, took over my, my mind. Um, and there was a bit of a blackout period there. I had just had my wife had, uh, my wife and I had just had our first son. Uh, at some point I built like a 200 pound system in my basement. I could not begin to tell you what was <laughs> Jordan's cracking up vision. Uh, I think it was sleep deprivation, frankly. Um, but I do I remember sitting in my basement and going, you know, it's three in the morning and I am like watching grass grow right now. I mean, this is really, this is really something. Um, and I just never would have uh, pictured myself there, but, um, you know, the, the craft monsters guild had just essentially been established. Um, and I think there was about 12 of us at the time I joined and just kind of, um, trolled the, the craft monsters guild forum um, watched everybody stub their toes so I didn't have to. And I think I got just so interested in seeing if I could pull this off is when I, when I built that little system in my basement. And so, um, and, and here I am, I mean, it was really kind of just developed on its own. There was really no intention of me saying, I want out of this really great paying corporate gig, um, where I work from home and make DC money and, um, open a malting business and, you know, financially struggle for a few years. I mean, there's just never one of those, there's just never one of those moments. So, um, but here I am and I, I couldn't be happier. Um, and some things happen for a reason, I suppose. All right. So, um, just in your career again, just, just trying to spotlight you cause you're, you're all three and we're going to, we're going to go pretty deep with both of you. Uh, a moment, you know, in your mid career that, that stands out for you, something you're proud of or something that challenged you to grow. Um, I guess for me, it would be when Sebastian brought me on to Epiphany. Um, he really wanted me to take over the malt house and run the production and plan it and uh, make sure everything was happening when it needed to and that the batches were going as they should. And I did that was not responsibility I'd had before. Um, and so for me, I was like, oh, man, I really got to step up. I got to really learn all these new things. Um you know, apply all the knowledge that I've learned and he's been great about it. I mean, he's, he's there when I need him to be, if I have questions or if I'm doubting myself, he's always there saying, no, you got this, you know, it just trust your gut. Um, and so that's been really great for me. I really enjoy it. And I'm really happy and proud that I have stuck with it. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. And then, and now the pick a malt that you, that you make, and is there a brewery or distillery that you're really proud of that, it's working with your malt. Oh, there's many, but I mean, the one that stands out the most is Wooden Robot in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, they are there through us through almost everything. Like they help us R&D products. Uh, they're the ones we go to if we have an idea. Um, you know, they're one of our biggest supporters. I mean, I just those guys are great. So they buy a lot of our base malt and a bunch of our specialty, but I guess our, our modern Pilsner, our Pilsner malt is probably one of my favorites. It's just a good malt. That's great. You're smiling too. I know you're proud of your work and you really, you have a real professionalism in your awe as you walk around here. And Joe, the, the same for you mid, mid career, you know, you, 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 at your farm, you're malting a, a moment or something you're proud of. 
Um, I think it's when you finally get to taste some of those whiskeys that have been aging for so long uh, that have used all your product. And once you taste that, you're like, wow, this is, this is something. <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's um, just kind of playing on the roaster, developing new products and then seeing what brewers want and, and tweaking the recipes and, and then seeing what they're doing with, with these products and, and um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just fun seeing what what the customers are, are creating with your product and um, getting getting out to taste it and, and chat with them about it and and adapt to to their needs. Yeah. So, is, is there one one whiskey or distillery that you want to tell us about? Um, well, there's this there's one beer or brewery we work with every year for one 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 beer they do. So they they have some friends that grow the barley using all old equipment pulled by horses. <laughs> so um, they, they plant it, plow it with horses and harvest it. This year they ran it through a thrashing machine even. Um, so we bring that in, custom malt it for them. And then custom, we do three or four different roasts for them on that beer. And then they, they do a, it's a stock ale or brown ale that, that they make. And then they take some of that and then barrel age it and then put some bread in with it, and, and that's, a, that's a pretty good product. Yeah. What's the name of the brewery? Uh, so that's Blind Man Brewing in Lacombe, Alberta. Yeah. Wow. That sounds cool. Is that like a 19th century kind of recipe or fantasy? Yeah, yeah. So they're just kind of, because they're using all these historical equipment, they kind of wanted to go back to a historical beer style and, and kind of bring it full circle. Yeah, that sounds kind of cool. Putting like leftover bread in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty neat. Yeah. And for, and for you, Jeff, mid career mode, you had the baby. <laughs> you okay. opened the store. Now, so, yeah. Um, uh, so I guess a, a do you ever test the uh, your hot steep on your kids? Um, we do for sure. <laughs> we, we, oh, yeah, yeah. I've I've tried. Yes, my my uh, my two boys are a bit stubborn still, so I'll I'll get them eventually. <laughs> yeah, our, when ours come into the malt house, they go straight to the malt samples and just start start yeah. chewing. <laughs> yeah. They stop at mine. Tend to stop at the chocolate malts. Uh, I can't imagine why. Um, but uh, so I, I suppose my my pride moment is when um, we work with customers that are uh, that you know they're hesitant. They they don't know really what to expect. Um, and they finally make the decision and um, seeing them take so much pride in how it improved what they were trying to do. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty gratifying um, to know that your, you know, your work is actually, you know, respected and, uh, and reflected in products that people can consume and when you can tell that your particular products are in a particular beer or spirit and and you love it um it's a uh, you know it's a testament to continuing to get up in the morning um and we just get a chance to work with just some really intentional um ethos driven uh producers i mean um for anywhere everywhere from spear lab distilling uh in downtown Charlottesville. I mean, he's very, very small batch, uh, single malt whiskey producer on a Solaris system. Um, just the most unassuming, um, master at his craft, uh, that I've, that I've really met in the distilling world. Um, his ability to make cuts is, is quite, uh, impressive, but then, you know, everywhere from, uh, Wheatland Spring in, uh, Waterford, Virginia, Black Narrows out in Shingateague Island on the eastern shore of Virginia, um, Crooked Run in uh, in Northern Virginia. I mean, we, we work with these folks that really um, have so much purpose, and to be able to help them deliver on the purpose is uh, is special. Yeah, we, we know Crooked Run. He's, he's been on the show a few times, but I, I, someone else had said, ask Jeff about Wheatland Springs. So Tell us what Wheatland Springs is. I don't even know what it is. Well, and 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 Jordan can can speak to Wheatland as well. Um, I mean, my relationship with <clears throat> the branding started uh, really before I think the the business did. Um, John had 
uh, you know, called me up and it was just another one of these conversations of, hey, I'm going to start this brewery. I'm going to grow the grain on the farm and I'd like you to malt. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, sure. Um, you know, frankly, expecting never to talk to him again <laughs> uh, because it's happened before. Um, and he, you know, he, they totally delivered on their, on their plan. And so um, we, they grow estate grain. Uh, we, uh, they send it down to us. We custom uh, malt their estate grain. Uh, and then they also work with us, Epiphany, um, and other craft maltsters, you know, throughout the country, frankly, everywhere from um, Mecca Grade in, in Oregon to um, Hudson Valley in New York, um, and really kind of spreading the craft malt message. Um, and they have just been huge champions of craft malt, um, as, as have, you know, the McKinnon Leonard's of Cricket Run and the Josh Chapman's of Black Narrows and, and so many others. Um, and so the, the work that, uh, they depend on us for is, um, it's, it's gratifying to see how well received they've been not only in Virginia, but nationwide. Um, and, uh, I think it, you know, it's a peer driven industry. And so when producers of that caliber are making high quality stuff with your stuff, um, their friends tend to follow suit. Um, and so uh, it's like I did when I first opened. I mean, reputation management was everything in year one. And um, it's because you can do as many sales calls as you want, uh, but you can skip all of the sales calls if one customer talks to their friend and, and um, tells them what a good experience with your stuff. So um, it's just, you know, I, I love getting up in the morning, uh, and going to work. Cause I get to, you know, help deliver on some of these, these, uh, these goals. Jordan, tell, tell me more about Wheatland Springs. I didn't even know what it was until today. Well, I think, uh, Jeff did a pretty good job summing up John's mission and what they do. Um, I mean, it's pretty great. I mean, they help, he helps do research with Virginia Tech on their uh, experimental lines to test the different regions of Virginia and, and really make sure the varieties are suited to growing in that area. Um, I mean, John's very passionate about what he does, and that's really great to be able to work with him uh, and have him spread the message of using craft malt and its importance in the brewing world and distilling world. So That's great. I want to talk about regionalism just because it, it seems to be important for everything from what you choose to grow to what people actually want to drink. Um, you guys in particular, Virginia and North Carolina, f for you in terms of the growing, is are these the same regions or are they separate? And then what, what barleys or other grains um, are you guys working with? Want to go first, Jordan? Or? I would consider us the same region. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I guess, slightly north in the mid-Atlantic, uh, but... Um, we share a border. I mean, the, you know, the, the growing season may differ just slightly, but, um, generally the same varieties, um, working with the same ag universities to kind of triangulate, uh, varieties and, and adaptation to our regions. Um, so it's nice to have good neighbors. Yeah. So, um, I heard about a new variety of barley that's coming out of Virginia. And that's why they said you got to talk to Jeff about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's pretty wild um, to be in the moment that was, you know, 10, 12 years in the making. Um, you know, I think the the thing about regionality for us in the in the mid-Atlantic is that nobody thinks we can grow grain over here. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think it's, you know, it's a... a a bit ignorant, but it actually was true um, for a minute there until people started investigating whether it was actually possible or not. And so that's where <clears throat> ag universities come in, Virginia Tech, NC State, you know, Penn State, Michigan State, Cornell. I mean, there's lists and lists and lists um, that bring varieties in and see if they will grow in our particular region. I mean, we are often growing European derived varieties. I mean, don't look now, but I mean, our weather's kind of similar. Um, 
And so we have gone from really no two-row multi-quality varieties to a pretty robust pipeline of four to five. And now we have one of our own. Um, and it's just nuts. I mean, this stuff takes... What is it? There's the name of this new barley. It's a, say it and tell us a little about it because you're way ahead of everyone here. <laughs> so Avalon, um, Avalon is the new two-row multi-quality barley that was developed by Virginia Tech to grow in our region, in our climate. Um, it is named after the street of uh, the farm of, that was owned by essentially the godfather of um, malting grain in Virginia, the one... Uh, Billy Dawson, the, the one guy that just took a bet and, or took a risk on um, growing malting quality grain uh, instead of corn and soybeans um, and was really the one that trailblazed accessibility to, you know, grain at scale that we can grow regionally. Um, and so his farm was on a on a road called Avalon, and so that they 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 named uh, this new variety after. And he unexpectedly passed away uh, a few years ago, um, and so it's just a testament to his to his work. But um, it's it's amazing stuff. It loves to grow here, um, and uh, it's got great characteristics. The way it malts is phenomenal. The um, the results we get are phenomenal, um, and so I would say Virginia Tech nailed it on. And Jordan? Yeah, I mean, we're very excited about Avon. We contracted some for this upcoming year to malt. Um, it's really exciting to be able to malt it and work with it, especially with Billy Story. I know that he's helped a lot of our um, farmers in the area when no one else would. Billy would step up and he'd be like, yeah, I'll help you get some seed. I'll give you some recommendations. And he did it on his own time. He really just wanted it to succeed in the area. And now this farmer uh, local to us, Tim Cools, he pays it forward with other farmers. He's like, Billy did this for me and I want to continue that legacy. It's really important. So I'm really happy that they dedicated it to Billy and that this line is doing so well. And I'm hoping that a lot of people grow it. <laughs> And then if, um, so you're rolling out a new line of barley, what's the timing and the steps involved, you know, from seeds to farmers before it gets to you guys in the malt house? Well, you gotta, gotta breed it first, which as Jeff said, it takes a long time to do that. It's like 12 years in the making. Um, and then you gotta increase it and get that distributed out. And that takes time. Um, and then it starts going out in smaller and smaller bases, and then eventually it's available for almost anyone that would like it. Um, so once that happens, whoever, one, any of our farmers that wants to grow it, we're like, cool, we'll hook you up with uh, our seed distributor and go ahead and grow some. And then we'll do uh, field inspections. We'll let uh, them send us harvest samples. We'll get it sent out for analysis uh, to make sure it meets all of our specs. And we go from there. And then we start doing testing trials. Once we get it in, we'll malt maybe five or 10 pounds, kind of see how it behaves, because every year it's different. Um, and go from there, do sensory, um, really make sure it's going to meet our customers' needs before we commit to doing 10-ton batches of it. So. Jeff, anything else about Avalon? And also, like, I want to know who, who's using it and what beers are being made with it. Um, yeah, so the, not many yet. I mean, this 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 year was the first year that uh, commercial seed was available. So it has essentially uh, proceeded out of foundation seed status where, you know, as Jordan mentioned, um, seed increases. So we essentially need to build up the seed stock so that we have it and, you know, have enough to, to be distributed. Um, and so the first commercial planting of Avalon occurred in October of last year. And so um, we did get, you know, some sneak peeks at it with um, some surplus foundation seed that some growers had available. But so I think we all got, um, a, you know, a small taste of it. Um, but this, this upcoming spring is going to be the, you know, the first full harvest of Avalon. And so um, I think what is so exciting about it is that you know, as, as a maltster, you kind of get to know 
barley varieties almost like i mean they each have like their own personality they all act differently they want different temperatures they take up water differently they um obviously throw different flavor uh flavor uh attributes but um you, you know i i never thought anything i love violetta so much which is a a, a european variety that that has been very successful in our region um and avalon is just a calmer uh cool and collected version of Violetta, which, um, I mean, if I, there was, if there was any dig against Violetta, it's that it can get a little intense, um, you know, in day two of germination, we call it liftoff. It, over a course of eight hours, it goes from, you know, really calm to completely, um, completely crazy in, in the germination room. So, um, being able to kind of temper that uh, with Avalon is, you know, it's, it's, it's the greatest and we get equally good functionality out of it as we do with Violetta. So, um, it, I really, I, I don't have any dings against it yet, at least. Yeah. We, we haven't done too much with it yet. Uh, this will be our first year receiving it on mass scale. We've gotten very small samples, like I'd said, but nothing, nothing large. So we're real excited to work with it. Um, well, I'll say that, Mecca cheers and a toast, Ping Chin. Uh, big toast to Avalon, the new barley variety out of uh, Virginia Tech, right? Okay. Hey, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital, online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host on Beer Sessions Radio. It's our 14th year with Heritage Radio Network. You can join us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So we're here at the first in a long time Craft Mall Conference in, in Portland, Maine, and I'm with three maltsters. Uh, one from North Carolina, one from Alberta, Canada, and one from Virginia. And we're just kind of talking, you know, Maltsters 101 for people like me that love our beer. Um, Joe's here from Alberta, his family farm, and, and is also a Maltster. Uh, for, we were talking a little about regional regionalism. Tell us about Alberta, Canada, what's different there, what barley you're growing, um, and any other exciting news coming from the farm. Yeah, we're we're pretty fortunate where we are for for having a malt plant. It's it's one of the the main regions in North America for growing barley. Um, so we got we got uh, two two or three different varieties we're kind of working with right now. We're growing Churchill, um, Low, and um, Connect. Um, so we kind of target them all to different different uh end user customers um but yeah they're all all the big big monsters around us are using them too so um and we got breeding facility about half hour from us and then there's another one in saskatchewan and manitoba as well so um, they're always pumping out new varieties and and so we we were lucky being that close to some of the breeders that we can 
kind of get a sneak peek on some of them, especially with our batch size. You can kind of sneak them in before some of the big guys and get a preview on what, what's coming down the pipeline. So, I mean, my understanding that in Canada, there's really big farms. There's a lot of malt. I remember um, Aaron from Hartwick used to tell us about the, just the giant full trains of, of loads of, of grain coming out of that area. What is it like being a craft maltster in this big area? Do you feel like you stand out and you're adding something that no one else is doing? Um, well, yeah, for, for us, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting being right in the middle of the two big guys, um, competing against them. Um, so the, the way we stand out is we got the roaster. Um, so we're roasting half our, half our products and that kind of lets these brewers and distillers stand out because now they have an option to do hundred percent Canadian grains, um, to get any kind of beer style or whiskey, um, made now. We're not, they don't have to import some of these roasted products from the States or from Europe. Oh, that's great. Now a question just about the conference, because we're here at the, the Craft Mall Conference. For each of you, you know, what, what's a highlight of the conference for you? Jordan's ready. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty easy. I get to see my friends in the industry that I don't get to see very often. People come from all over the world to this conference to learn, network, um, and see their friends. So that's really my highlight is just getting to see everybody, meeting new people. I mean, I don't get to see Jeff very often, and he's not even that far from me. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really what the highlight is, and also learning. I mean, that's always a plus, but really it's just networking and troubleshooting and and meeting new people. Because you work all the time. Yeah, I do work a lot. <laughs> Great. And Joe? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. It's just networking and seeing all these people that we haven't seen in years. <laughs> uh, sitting down, having a beer, having conversations like this. Um, and I like, it, whenever I get a chance to go see another malt house, you, you got to take advantage. So it's it fun to head up to Blue Ox and, and check out his facility up there. And yeah. Is there something that you learned from that visit? Um, well, yeah, it's kind of always interesting just seeing how other people take the, take their approach to malting. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of neat seeing, seeing how they set up their steep tanks and, and kiln and then you can kind of take that back home and see if there's anything you can change at in your process and, and adapt or improve. Great. And Jeff, any specific highlights, something that you learned from this or a favorite session so far? Um, I mean, I, I certainly have um, favorite sessions. I mean, I, th I think the uh, the coming American single malt whiskey movement um, is pretty exciting, and it's a huge opportunity for craft maltsters. I mean, this is a this is a obviously a big thing in the spirits uh, in the spirits world, but um, the ability to uh, to contribute to you know a new category of spirit um is uh it's it's pretty exciting and uh, I, I have to say you know i love i love seeing everybody when i come to the conference but one thing i i kind of unexpectedly get out of this every every year despite the fact that it's taken us two years <laughs> to get here um is uh it just gives me a good kick in the pants uh you know i think we can all kind of get stuck in the monotony and the grind of, you know, owning and operating malt houses and um, being the salesman, the manufacturer and the janitor all at the same time. And, um, I, you know, I always leave here wanting to do better. And so it, it, it forces you to really, um, you know, take inventory and kind of audit what you're, you're doing uh, with your business. And, I think it's just a great motivator uh, in the end. And I, I think that's certainly a, a part of seeing your friends and your, your colleagues is certainly a part of that, but um, it just gives you time to you know, like reflect as opposed to, uh, you know, going into the malt house every day and trying to pump it out as, as fast as you can. So um, I, I certainly wasn't expecting it, but I love that. Yeah, there, there's a really nice mix here. There's, there's farmers and there's monsters. There's a few distillers and brewers, especially like Allagash because the, they're kind of co-hosting. But it's been very eye-opening for me and, and enjoyable. You know, I'm slightly an outsider, but I, I feel like um, we're all, if you like beer and you like spirits, 
you, you're invested in in good malt, and that's that's an important part of this conference. Um, one question. So the the keynote speaker Rob Arnold, um, he talks a lot about terroir and flavor. Um, who wants to tackle that question, or does terroir? I don't know what is the relationship between terroir and flavor. I couldn't quite understand what he was talking about, other than he wants people to know that terroir can influence flavor. Um, anyone want that one? Jeff gets it. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Is this is this because I talk too much? Is that why you guys pointed it? Um, so I, I would I guess to answer your question, what's the difference between terroir and flavor? I mean, you know, terroir comes from the 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 wine making uh, industry and the you know the the effect of the region on the uh, agricultural product. So um, you know the fact that barley is grown in Virginia as opposed to Colorado, uh, you know, Virginia breweries using Virginia malt are inherently delivering Virginia flavor. Um, I mean, we call our our Pilsner malt Virginia Pils because it is, you know, that is what we are trying to do. We're trying to um, give the best example of what Virginia malt tastes like, you know, not encumbered by, you know, high kilning um, or, uh, you know, other you know, roasting or, or other or flavor at, you know, flavor additives, if you will, um, or techniques. Um, it is just, uh, it is just Virginia barley in a functional, flavorful package. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really what terroir is. I, you know, I think the terroir question is, is a, is a tough one because beer, particularly craft beer is very loud flavor wise. Um, you know, let's not even get into the like quadruple dry hopped, um, you know, with eight different hop varieties. Would it, you know, is it, is it possible to notice the difference between Calypso barley and Violetta barley in a beer like that? No. I mean, I, I will, this is my personal opinion. I will say no, there's just too much going on. Um, if you do a, you know, a, a smash beer, a single malt, single hop, um, you're, I think you're getting closer. Um, I think the biggest opportunity for terroir expression and regionality and flavor and regionality is the, the renewal of the appreciation of lager brewing, uh, in North America. I mean, <laughs> I think there's a quote out there. I, I, I don't know why everybody's so surprised. Um, you know, lager's been, uh, has been at the top for 500 years and I guess we're just, we're just noticing. Um, but, uh, it, lager, particularly pale lager is just, you know, it's, it's simple. It's simple. And, and that I think is the best, um, vehicle for delivering regional flavor. Um, but you know, it's also a subjective topic. I mean, sensory is hard, uh, to begin with. And so whether somebody will pick up a flavor attribute between varieties or from different regions of the country, um, is, you know, 50, 50 shot, I guess. I mean, some people may pick that up and some people have very well developed palates probably can. Um, so I guess that would be my answer. That's a good one. I, and I'll say my takeaway from this whole conference is my own new tagline is talk malt, drink lager. And now that I'm talking to you guys, I realize that the history of modern beer really is the history of malting, right? I mean, it went from more of open flames and smokiness or funkiness to some more like temperature controls, you know, maybe starting in 1820 or something. Yeah, science, I mean, science helped a lot. I mean, the, the ability to, um, to analyze malt products and, and beer products. I mean, I think did great things for, for beer and spirits. I mean, decoction is a thing because maltsters had no idea what they were making back then. Um, and it turns out it was not particularly uh, thoroughly done. Uh, and so decoction mashing, um, it was essentially the brewer extending the malting process. Um, and uh, so I think that has really helped the advent of science is um a big turning point in i think beer's history so we're, we're talking about from this idea of con controlled malting 
in some is, is that the term controlled malting versus like just having a v various malted grains and being you know put in a brew like pre i'm only saying 1820 because someone told me that's when like thermometers and other things were really coming into use and i know the history of like czech pilsner was like 1840s but they but they had taken some of the english technology that could that could create you know pale malts and some there's something happened around 1820 to 1840 where the ability to control the kilning and and end up with the pale malts instead of a a dark or burnt or what other types of malts people were using. I don't think we even realized what what type of malts people used before. Um, I mean, have you guys ever exper experimented with just like rustic, uh, you know, kilning or whatever? I mean, we've gotten we've gotten requests for you know what they call diastatic brown malt, which is and also I don't know any of the terms, so I'm not making sense. So your job is to make sense of what I'm talking about. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we've gotten requests for diastatic brown malt. I think, you know, probably everybody at this conference has probably gotten that request. It, it was essentially the um, the malt of lore. Um, it, the only, there's really no such thing as diastatic brown malt. The only reason it was diastatic and brown is because a portion of it got burnt when it lit on fire because they fired their kilns with hay or, you know, coal or coke or um, any other or wood, any other combustible. Um, so the, just the advent of indirect fired kilns, um, you know, was an improvement. I think with the science thing, it's mostly that, you know, if, if maltsters back in those days knew that they were making under modified malt, they would, they would modify it better, but they didn't know because they couldn't test what they had. Certificates of analysis for are much more for maltsters than they are for for brewers. I mean, we try to speak a common language and both understand them, but I totally geek out on lab results. I mean, it is like the, <laughs> it is the most enjoyable part of my, uh, of my work. And, um, because it can tell you so much and then you can pull levers in the malt house to improve or, um, or change the result. And so, but if you don't have the ability to analyze, your finished product, you would have no idea what to change because you don't know what you've got. And so, um, you know, the controlled malting, that was, it, those are improvements in just the, the way that um, industrial processes have improved. Um, but in terms of uh, knowing what you're getting in, in lab results um, is equally as important. Thank you. I feel better. <laughs> so the it's the indirect heat is part of that also, in in the kiln. Yeah, that was a major. I, I mean, I I don't know if you guys agree with me. There's like a, ma a major, uh, you know, uh, turning point. I think with 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 kilning. I mean, direct fire exposes, or you know, exposing high moisture grain to combustible gases. Uh, exposes it to a huge nitrosamine load, which are very cancerous. And so um, by removing the combustible gases and just applying the heat, um, you're not exposing your products to that, those combustible off, off gases. So, um, I mean, a significant turning point. Yeah, I totally agree. That's, that's the only reason we have those pale malts and pilsner malts now is with the indirect kilns. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they just didn't know what they were getting, and now that we do, we can make the proper adjustments. So. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, when the first, I think when I first used to do any malt shows, there was always this like fantasy that you could have some burnt or smoked or some kind of malt just on a fire or something, um, but that's not the case, is it? Uh, I don't. I don't really think so. Uh, I mean, that's just my opinion. Um, I don't know how many, many quest customers that asked for those kinds of products. So um, we had a customer ask for some windblown malt, which was an adventure, um, which is basically it's malt that's dried in the, in the sun instead of a kiln. Um, so that makes a very unique flavor. It's, it's very, um, 
I guess, grass. There's a lot of grass flavor notes. It's very vegetative, uh, but it's used for a unique style of beer. I think they did a, a lager of, of some sorts, a historical lager. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of customers asking for like a open, open fired uh, malt. I do have f- folks ask for smoked malt, but that's a whole different ball game um, where you can maybe get some of those flavors you're talking about without the cancerous uh, elements to it. <laughs> so, how do you make smoke smoke malt now in our modern times? Um, so we cold smoke it, um, similar to like you would do with meat. Uh, we re- rehydrate the grain. We'll smoke pretty much any product we have on the shelf, which is. Uh, pretty unique. I have some folks mixing and matching and, and, and things like that. Um, and basically I use our roaster as our, our cold smoker, which is kind of fun. Um, and we do all different types of wood. You can bring your own, uh, you can mix and match. Uh, I have a lot of customization with it, which is what I like best. So talk about sensory. I literally, as you were talking, smoking, I just have the smell of like smoke coming off a, a barbecue smoker. It's, it's, it just went through my brain. I love that. Joe, what about you? Any any unusual requests or experiments you've done? Because I, I think sometimes people want to go to the weird side too. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we get quite a few people, especially distillers, asking about smoked malts as well. Um, so we're trying to figure out a way way to do that for them now. Um, but then that, most most of the requests are pretty standard. Um, uh, we do roast, do some custom roasts for some people if they want darker or lighter than what our standard malts are. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And then tell us one more time about the, the brewery that want, that does the horse, just the horse product. Walk us through that again. And then what did that taste like? What was, is there anything different about it? Um, yeah, so they, they farm, I, I can't remember, it's like 10, 10 acres or so with horse-drawn equipment. And so yeah, we bring in that barley um, and, and just run it through pretty much a normal uh, malting process, come out with a Pilsner malt in the end. And then, um, yeah, we roast some of that some into a, our biscuit um, so you get some nice kind of bready, biscuity notes out of that. And then we get some chocolate malted in there as well for some color. Um, and then we do, a we do roast some of the green malt in, in our roaster for that, for that project. So you do get a little bit of crystallization in there and, and some sweetness that, that translates back into the beer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great beer. It's nice, nice kind of English brown ale. Um, yeah, nice nutty notes to it and nice creamy smooth finish and yeah. Wow. This is great. Um, this is our second show at the Craft Malt Conference in Portland, Maine, March 17th, 2023. I'm, I'm going to ask you guys at the end, I'm sure at least one of you has a question for someone else in the room. You know, pretend we're at the conference and you're asking someone a question. This is the time. Who wants to go first? Well, I'm curious about, I'm curious about the smoking in the roaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so... We basically converted it as a smoker. We funnel the smoke in, and um, I close off my vents to kind of uh, keep all of the smoke contained and with the malt, and we rehydrate it. So I add a lot of water to it, get it nice and wet, which helps trap the smoke in. Um, and I, I do it based on whatever they want their smoke strength to be. Um, ours is very different than what you'd see from like the peat smoked. Like we're nowhere near that, that strong. We're pretty subtle in comparison. Um, but I kind of like that because it gives it more of a character. It's more, well, more well-rounded. Um, I feel like you can pick up different flavor notes. Like, uh, when you do like maple or pecan or applewood, you're getting more sweet sweet smoke versus like oak which is a lot more persistent and um uh, a little bit more potent uh no sweet elements at all um and so yeah i i do that and when it's done and the strength is achieved and everything has burned out basically um i open the vents up and i dry down the malt to um, our specifications and from there uh, i do have to either (laughs) do a cleaning cycle or a um make like a chocolate or something. Yeah. Yeah. Dark roast to get rid of the smoke because it kind of hangs out. So I might accidentally get uh, smoked something else of whatever goes in the roaster. And so we we don't want that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Any other questions? 
But I've got, I've got the. I mean, this question is is uh, this will be to Joe, but um, every every monster in this conference uh, wants to demystify what the right size malt house is. I mean, we, we no, nobody has the answer yet, and I, I don't know if we ever will. Um, but I was just curious with with Redshed, if you know, how did you guys determine your size in line with the farming operation? Was it linked to how much grain you guys were producing or i mean in my case i built what i could afford which was definitely not enough uh but how did you guys come up with your your volume um yeah we so our first system was a two two ton salad and box um I, i'm not really sure how we picked that size really it's because we grow way more barley than we consume in the mall house right now so we still sell um malt barley to uh to the big guys, um, so I think probably originally it was is probably based on on finances as well, what we could afford at the time and and what we thought we would be able to sell, um, and yeah. So then and then now we just uh, did a big upgrade. So now we got a, a, a ten ton drum system now that we're operating into. So we still even with that we still have access um, barley that we grow. Yeah, so we can still grow in, grow into it. Probably add a second drum, and then we'd probably be getting close to our capacity on what we grow. Then we'd have to go sourcing some more from neighbors. I mean, I, I would venture to say that <laughs> um, everybody here is in the in some form of expansion mode. Um, I, I mean, we, I, like Joe did. I mean, we we built our system based on what we thought we could sell. Um, I mean, first off. Um, certainly like any private capital investor uh it's it's very hard to convince someone like that that you can sell you know a thousand tons a year uh when you haven't done it before uh so you know there's 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 managing expectations uh and you know falsely based opinions sometimes but um i think it's a I think it's a testament to our work. I mean, we are, we all built two small malt houses. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, we're, we're trying to catch up or keep up. Um, and I mean, there, you know, there are big hitters at these, at these conferences now. I mean, Dan Carey from Glarus is at the craft malt conference. I mean, these are, um, these are big names in brewing that are, showing up and saying this stuff is worth looking into right and so um you know i i'm i'm glad it's not the other way around i'm glad i didn't big to build too big of a malt house and have capacity problems now but um it is just such an elusive number to figure out like what the right size is um and how to expand and so on and so forth. Yeah, that was, that was the, even with our expansion we didn't know what yeah. what size to do we, we were debating going to five tons size batches or 10 ton and but yeah eventually settled on the 10 ton but not not really sure why but that's that's what we did again <laughs> yeah jordan just uh last things um young person coming up once again to this industry what do you recommend they they do or study um well i guess in this industry you have to be prepared to work hard and uh get dirty <laughs> um it's it's a pretty hard job um and so i think the people who make it through are really dedicated and really love what they do otherwise i think they decide to go down a different path um i would suggest maybe contacting a local malt house and asking if you could intern or shadow or you know work for them a little bit just to kind of get a taste to see if it's the right industry for you um, it's really about who, you know, and it's all about making the connections and into getting the, into this industry. Cause it's a very tight industry to get into depending on where you are. Um, so yeah, I just suggest that, you know, go talk to your local monsters. See what they're up to. You guys, this has been so great. I got Jordan, Joe and Jeff, three monsters. Uh, this is a little snapshot of the craft malt conference here in Portland, Maine, March 17th, 2023. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Good stuff. Jeff's got something. I love this. <laughs> I, I, have, I, have, I have one clarification to make. So when we were talking about, um, you know, indirect or direct fired kilns, uh, it, you know, it was a it was a very important uh, improvement. Um, 
there is something to be said for the historical significance of how malt used to be dried back in the day. I mean, for instance, Norwegian farmhouse brewing still relies on Sainhouse malt production where they're they're drying, they're they're firing their kilns with heat underneath um, a wood floor that with has perforations driven into it. I think what's important to note about um, you know the historical significance um, of direct fired kilns if everyone were consuming beer every day with malt dried on direct fired kilns, we would have a problem. You know, the, the fact that um, there are some whiskeys made with uh, direct fired kiln malts or, um, you know, small portions of malt bills using uh, direct fire dried malts is, you know, is not a, a concern by any means. I mean, there is certainly, um, you know, attributes of those malts that are, that are beautiful. Um, so I just, I don't, I don't, I don't want to diminish what, uh, like, like Caleb's doing at Sugar Creek Malt House. I mean, I think it's, it's really important work and it really celebrates, um, very important pieces of, of brewing history. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting moment here. There's a lot of people outside. What's going on? Who wants to tell me about what's happening tonight? Cause it's a big part of the conference. Then we'll sign off. The Malt Cup is happening, so um, we got to find out, I think these are four, three or four categories this year, four categories this year, and so Maltsters had an opportunity to submit malt samples for anal analytical judging and sensory um, panels. Um, so we got to find out who the winners are. Well, that's amazing, and when, when this podcast airs in March or April 2023, you're going to be able to find out who the winners of this year's Malt Cup are. Last year, we know that uh, Hillary from Rabbit, Rabbit Hill was one of the top winners, and we have a lot of respect for her, and I know she's on the board of the Craft Monsters Guild. So thank you guys so much once again, Joe, Jordan, and Jeff. <laughs> it's been a long day. We had some good beers at Navari Res. I'm going to go back there and try to finish off either the Northwoods, Dunkel Lager, and maybe the Alligator 16 we were drinking before, too. So thanks so much. Shout out to our engineer, Armin Spengen. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Thank you. Thank you very much. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.